an advertising CEO who wants to restore our shared truth by directing ad dollars to publications with a reasonable amount of bias, joins us right after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. Welcome to Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. We're joined by a great guest today. Vanessa Otero is the CEO of AdFontis Media, which rates publications on how they're biased and lets advertisers buy ads based on those ratings. It's one of the more fascinating companies I've come across in my years as a reporter, and I'm so excited to bring you this conversation today. Vanessa, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Alex. Thanks for being here. Let's start here. It's clear that our shared truth has kind of dissolved, right? There are people in the US and all over the world who can look at the same news story and either look at it completely different with a different set of facts, or maybe even some folks on one side of the political aisle won't even know that a story is happening while another side is going to be fully tuned into it. So I'm curious from your perspective, how did you initially realize that this was a problem because you're trying to solve it? And what can we do about it? Well, this all started for me back in the 2016 election. And the way that people would fight about news and politics on Facebook in particular, back when the there was a, lots of news shared on the news feed, people would share really biased and uh, unreliable sources with each other. And I noticed that people couldn't convince each other of their points, right? Like people would just completely discard the media from the other side. And it appeared to be this function of the fact that we had so many more news and information sources than we ever had before. So it was really easy for people to uh, get into their own little filter bubbles. I mean, in the years right before that, that's when that term was really coined. And like you said, there's no shared truth. I, I noticed that folks would they'd have divisions because of both polarization, but also because of you know, what people broadly call misinformation. Like it makes sense that people on the left and right, you know, political divides, you know, don't see eye to eye because they don't see, you know, read and hear the same things. But misinformation is like that too. Like if you have one set of folks that believes a certain set of facts and others just don't believe those facts, that creates division in that way as well. So, you know, what this all started out as was, you know, an infographic just to plot out a few dozen of the news sources that are out there to show that there's a difference between stuff that's, you know, highly reliable, stuff that's okay, stuff that's uh, really problematic, things that are left and right, and things that are even more so. So I am kind of curious, like, okay, these are big things that you're going to tackle, bias and misinformation. Like, how do you even begin to consider, like, doing this in a way that's not politically motivated? The answer is you have to get super granular. So for us, that means human analysts from left, right, and center looking at individual articles, individual episodes, individual uh, your TV and podcast content in order to like, look at sentences, headlines, graphics, all the things that make it up to uh, come to a rating on that. You know, maybe the idea is, and I think this is what your idea is, right? You know, don't eliminate the idea of, of 
biased publications or publications that reflect one political standing or another, but sort of concentrate the ad spend into those that still are, you know, that believe in the shared truth versus are, are extremely skewed. Is that, is that what you're trying to do? And how does that happen? So when we first uh, approached uh, ad tech companies and brands and publishers, like the whole idea was, you know, we want to help it change the incentives in the media ecosystem. And we thought that the, the brand's biggest use for our data would be to help them avoid extremely polarizing and misleading and inaccurate content because it's bad for society and also it's probably bad for the brand, right? Uh, but when we started approaching more and more brands, we uh, we found so many of them would tell us like, well, that's not really a problem for us because we just don't advertise in news anymore <laughs> at all. And you know, that to me that seemed that seemed like worse, right? Because the you have this worst of all possible worlds where the misleading, highly polarizing content it's fairly cheap to produce, right? You don't need you can have a, a person or five with a website and you can churn out just rage clickbait material pretty easily and get enough like programmatic ad dollars to stay afloat and you're great. Uh, but then the high quality investigative reporting, the editorial newsroom stuff, that's expensive. So if you have enough brands pulling away from that kind of content, then you see this degradation in our media landscape where good journalism suffers and the sort of garbage out there thrives. So that's what we're really trying to change in the ecosystem. Right. And you read a, you wrote a uh, op-ed recently in Pointer, and you said this one sentence that to me really stuck out, which is that uh, brand safety, this rush toward brand safety is misguided. I mean, it seems to me logical that brands would want to put their ads on content that is not controversial. So why do you think it's misguided? Yeah. So the uh, brand safety as an industry only really got started, you know, within the last, you know, 10 or 12 years. And it was, it. I think the first big moments in the, in this brand safety movement were around YouTube videos where terror, there are terrorists beheading people and ads were showing up next to that kind of content, like this user-generated content. So, you know, companies uh, rushed in to provide solutions around, oh, let's not show up next to things that are violent. Uh, let's not show up next to things that are sexually explicit. Um, let's try to screen out, uh, you know, bad words that um, and do this at scale. And it sort of grew and grew and grew uh, to this place where it's like anything that's you know kind of yucky at all, um, brands are like, okay, well that let's let's stay away from that. Let's not put our advertising dollars next to it, and that came to encompass news. However, there's not great data. There's not really any data that shows that uh, brands suffer any sort of you know backlash from consumers if they're advertising in high quality news. Examples I give, you know, Wall Street Journal, uh, you know, a few a few months ago, they had a an expose about um, Instagram and how you know um, you know sexually explicit content with minors was showing up on Instagram, and it was like this investigative reporting that was you know pretty important. And in the Wall Street Journal, you know, they have embedded ads from lots of big brands, right? And there was no 
you know, backlash to those brands for appearing adjacent next to content that was reporting about um, this unpleasant subject, right? No one said, oh, that that advertiser, they support, you know, child porn on Instagram. No one, no one says that, right? But the brand safety tools that exist to you know, keep the folks away from, uh, from news, they're so broad. Like so many brands use keyword blocking lists and category exclusions in, in order to stay away from anything that's quote controversial or quote negative. And it's just swung too much in that direction that it's really hurting news publications. And you say that more than 80% of advertising has evaporated from the news business since 2005 as print has collapsed. So how much of this money moving away from the news business is due to the collapse of print? And how much of it is due to the fact that advertisers just don't want to be on news stories anymore? Well, it's a combination of a lot of things, right? A lot of things have changed in the news and technology landscape since 2005. I mean, you have the rise of you know, Google and Facebook, I mean, so much spend that was going towards news moved over to search and uh, walled, these walled gardens, right? So it's not just that brands have moved away from news, but the brand safety movement uh, has has certainly not helped. So, and it's ironic because in, you know, social media platforms, Brand safety is very opaque. There are really no guarantees on it. So it's ironic that brands would say, well, we don't want to advertise next to news because it's not safe. Yet they'll just put that money in uh, Facebook, X, um, you know, YouTube, where there's really not a lot of insight for those brands into the you know, brand safety on those platforms. Okay, so let's dig in a little bit into how your team rates you know, it's kind of interesting. You, you brought up that they look at sentences and they rate based off of fact, factual uh, integrity. And there's someone from the right, left, and the center there. But what is the actual process? Like, how, how are you really able to tell if a story is, is like right, left, or center bias? For instance, like the New York Times there skews a little left and the Wall Street Journal skews a little right in your chart. Um, they're both like within the, like, the respect, the fact, right. obviously. Um, type, well, I guess maybe not, obviously people might have a bone to pick on that, um, in the respect of fact category. So, uh, how do you like rate each story? Well, the news overall news source ratings, like you mentioned, New York times, wall street journal, uh, being a little to the left and to the, uh, to the right, respectively, their ratings are based on a representative sample of content. And for each one of them, we rated hundreds of articles manually over the last uh, several years. And if, uh, so for each article we rate, it's a panel of, of three folks. So, I mean, this is it's as, in, as work intensive as it sounds. All day, every day, in shifts on Zoom, you have panels of three analysts at a time, just going through article after article after article, episode after episode. And they're looking at certain factors for reliability and certain factors for bias. And it's it's akin to like a grading rubric for uh, for a paper, like a you know, AP test or something. Or if you're like trying to grade something um, that's a, inherently a bit subjective, like uh, you know, gymnastics or figure skating, we're looking for certain things. And once folks are trained in our content analysis methodology, they can systematically look for those things and arrive at pretty consistent ratings. What are you looking for? 
So the sub factors for reliability are, you know, one, the the headlines and, and images, like how those how well those match the story. Uh, two, expression is a really big one. So how it's expressed as fact, as analysis or opinion or worse. And then the the main one that think the the one that folks think of immediately is veracity, like likelihood of, of veracity. And this is the one that trips people up uh, philosophically because they're like, well, you know, how do you tell what's true? Look, there are there are things that are truer than others, right? And there are things that you can be ninety nine percent sure. Uh, there are things that you can be like sixty percent sure. So we're looking for the likelihood of veracity of underlying claims to the best of our ability by looking at other primary sources and other reporting uh, on on the internet. Like we can do lateral reading. That's like the primary way that folks who uh, teach media literacy teach people how to evaluate evaluate whether something's true or not. And for bias, we're looking at different sub factors too. Like there's the language that people use to characterize their issues or opponents, right? Like you can use you can use adjectives to describe um, you know some a politician as like senile or decrepit or um, cunning, right? Uh, all those matter. Uh, there's the terminology that you use for the positions like you know illegal aliens versus uh, undocumented persons, right? Uh, we're looking for the advocacy of political positions. Some have it, some don't. We're looking at the comparison between you know, different articles about the same topic. So each one of those sub-factors is one that we can use to you know, triangulate and measure like an actual score for bias in a rubric. And then you apply those ratings to different tranches of media that an ad buyer can go in and basically be like, all right, like give me the ad fontis group that is, you know, I, let me, I'm going to just pull up your chart. Yeah. That one that, you know, might be middle skews left and skews right, but isn't hyper-partisan right or left. Mm -hmm. And maybe within like the realm of truth of, you know, opinion or wide varieties and reliability or, or just like, you know, most analysis or mix of fact is a mixed of fact uh, reporting and analysis or fact-based reporting. So is that they can sort of pick like the buckets that they want and then go to an advertising technology platform and say, give me these? Yeah, exactly. I mean, generally, uh, for for most brands that want to advertise in news or you know, do advertise in news, you know, they want to stay towards like the, the top middle, not you know, exactly right in the middle, like centrist. Uh, like I said, there's nothing wrong with like left and right bias. And there is a certain, you know, there's certain analysis and opinion content that is very palatable palatable to advertisers and has great audiences. So yeah, we basically allow advertisers to select and get back into news based on you know being on the higher reliability side and the uh, minimally biased side. Interesting. So talk a little bit about um, how long the company has existed, how long this product has existed, and what tangible results have you shown so far from your efforts? I mean, we have been around as a company for a little over five years. Uh, we're a, a public benefit corporation. So, you know, we're a for-profit company with a stated public mission. You know, this all started because we wanted to help folks navigate the news landscape. And that's all the stakeholders in news media, whether it's you know, individual consumers, you know, just figuring out for themselves what's reliable and biased, whether it's educators, uh, teaching media literacy. But, you know, advertisers... 
uh, publishers and social media companies all have such a huge role uh, to play in this. And our uh, our data has really you know come into its own in the last you know two two and a half years, or that's the time period during which we've had dozens of analysts. We have now rated you know nearly ten thousand different individual news sources. So it, it's a lot of it's a lot of data out there, right? And since it's now available in in DSPs and is selectable, it it's. Which is basically, for those listening, a DSP is a place you buy online ads. Yes, I'm sorry. I just jumped right into the ad tech, uh, you know, the <laughs> terminology. The I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's selectable, you know, in the places where you can buy media. So you, we're, really, we're really optimistic. We're really hopeful with what we've seen so far uh, with you know, advertisers, you know, major advertisers in all the different uh, verticals using our data to uh, get back into news responsibly. Because... And that's it's been encouraging, right? Our 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 message has been like well received. Like people know that they should uh, advertise in good journalism and, and avoid the uh, misleading, polarizing stuff. It's just uh, that they haven't had good ways to do it before. So the advertisers aren't coming to you and saying we want the hyperpartisan, not true <laughs> stuff. Like it's mostly the folk, mostly advertisers saying we want some, you know reasonably biased uh, publications that respect the facts. Yeah, exactly. Like no one like wants to advertise on the hyperpartisan, like misleading content on purpose. Like I really haven't had any advertisers that are like, yes, our audience is there. Let's go, let's go after that. Like, you know, advertisers have like this. You could, you could. If you're my pillow, you might might (laughs) want to use this stuff. But anyway, I digress. People do bring up, bring that up. (laughs) And sure. They're like, Advertisers, uh, for the most part, try to block this stuff. Like, there's enough energy mm-hmm. uh, around, like, enough like self awareness to know that they shouldn't advertise on misleading, extremely polarizing content. Uh, a lot of it ends up there on accident, right? It's right. the ad tech ecosystem is opaque. Sometimes it's not that easy to control exactly where your advertisers run, especially on the internet. Um, so, yeah. They ha- no one's come to us saying like, yes, we want to target the most extremes. Do you have a sense as to how much money you think you've brought back into news? How much total spend has gone through with your data? And can you name some names of advertisers that are using this stuff? You know, it's hard to say, you know, dollar wise, um, but we do have, we just launched this um, billion dollar challenge to get advertisers back to news in this 20, especially in this 2024 um, election cycle. So we're still pretty early. That That's a challenge that we issued just within the last uh, month or so. And it's funny that you um, ask about particular brands. I'm not going to mention any names without, you know, prior express permission, because when it comes to things like, you know, political, uh, you know, how biased stuff is and, you know, how, how ad brands make decisions about where they advertise, as you can imagine, some are like a little sensitive. So, you know, hopefully within the next you know, few weeks, for we'll, our billion dollar challenge, we'll have some brands that we can talk about that will endorse. Like that's what we're actually looking for. We're looking for brands to step up to the plate and say, yes, like this is something that not only we do in practice, but we believe in and want to put our name on it. So it's a, you know, I, I want to be, you know, fully like Frank about the challenge that this is, right? 
Right. So many big brands are afraid of news and of putting themselves out there and saying like, yes, we're going to draw this line in the sand about reliability and bias. That's why it's, uh, that's why newsrooms continue to suffer because brands have been so hesitant, uh, especially in recent years. So then what, I mean, I guess like from my standpoint as a journalist trying to see how real this is, like, you know, what, what should convince us that this is something that's going to actually take off and lead to a spend that helps restore you know, it helps invigorate publications that respect the truth and aren't skewed hyperpartisan, helps reinvigorate them financially, and that this thing can actually accomplish its mission versus something that's, you know, a, a cool idea in principle, but might just never take off because of these hesitancies. We can't, we don't know that for sure. That's the thing. I mean, that's the, uh, that's the unknown part. You know, we're a startup where uh, we have not, we have not yet proven that we can successfully bring back so many brands to advertising and news that it's going to make a difference in uh, the success and monetization of good um, of good publishers. And that's a scary place to be in, I think, for our democracy, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Publishers have been struggling with this for a while. I mean, we talked to major publishers, like you know, some of the the biggest names out there who during 2020, 2022, uh, coverage of COVID, coverage of like the the um, the protests after George Floyd's murder, right? The negativity in news, like everything in the news was negative, right? And publishers would say to me, you know, our um, our readership went up, 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 up. Our monetization just went down, down, down because brands were just like, oh, no, we don't want to be around COVID coverage. We don't want to be about around coverage about Black Lives Matter. We don't want to be around around this stuff. And so I don't have a guarantee for you, for anybody that my company, uh, as much as people say that they love this idea, um, it's they say like, oh, yes, we definitely want to support journalism and branches support democracy. Uh, no guarantees, right? So that's why we're issuing this call to action, this billion dollar challenge. Um, it's going to take some changes. Like it's um, it, the the trend has not been good for publishers. The you know, the responsibility of brands it hasn't been you know they have not been stepping up to the plate, right? So I'm an optimist, and I think it can work, but we need people to jump in the boat with us. Vanessa Otero is here with us. She's the CEO of AdFontis Media. We'll be back in the second half with some more questions about the business model and maybe what we're going to see heading into the 2024 election. Back right after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers 
and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back here on Big Technology Podcast with Vanessa Otero, the CEO of AdFontis Media. Uh, Vanessa, you've also, you've written in depth about what you're planning to do here. So um, a couple more questions for you about the... What happens, the impact, you know, should this succeed? So first of all, you write, as you veer off to the left or the right, quality and trust drop precipitously. So I'm curious when you write something like that, like how do you answer like the both sides argument that people might say like, well, like, you know, okay, like, you know, you might have uh, some of this stuff on the left and some of this on the right, but the magnitude isn't the same. So when you putting it in the same sentence, some people might not be fans of it. I'm curious what, I mean, I personally think that like, yes, there are problems on both sides of the political spectrum here, mm-hmm. but how do you answer that argument? Well, just because there are two sides to an issue doesn't mean that they're equal and opposite. Like if you think about uh, you know, a case in, in court, right? There's always two sides. And what we're trying to do is, you know, be, be you know, judges of the content. And a judge, you're not asking a judge to be neutral. You're asking a judge to be fair, right? What I mean by that is at the end of the day, the judge doesn't say like, oh, well, you both have a point, you know, good luck. You ask the judge (laughs) to like make a call, uh, which uh, which side has a better argument Uh, and the side with a better argument in a particular uh, on on a particular issue uh, tends to be the one that has um, better facts, more facts tied to their analysis and and their conclusions. You're right that folks. you know, folks on the left and the right will you know, point to the other side and say, well, they're worse because of X, Y, and Z. And the nature of what's like far left and what's far right on our chart are, are different, right? You'll notice if, if you look really closely, especially at our interactive uh, media bias chart and at our, our, web, uh, our web chart versus our podcast chart, there is a, there are more right-leaning websites. There's just literally a larger number, objectively, of sites that have um, misleading, inaccurate information. It's just like a bigger ecosystem over there. Uh, So folks on the right will point to that and say, well, that just means that your chart is biased because there's more stuff on the right. I mean, I don't think that's what it does mean. Um, the it's not that there's not misleading content on the left. And there's just less, there's a lot less website content that's specifically tailored towards left-leaning, misleading, inaccurate information. But you go to podcasts, though, there's a there's a nice like little universe that's um long form. Uh you see this in video too. So you can find a lot of YouTube channels that are left-leaning that are conspiratorial, right? So it's just not the exact same uh, content mm-hmm. universe uh, on each side. So 
you know, it just be, just because two sides exist doesn't mean they're doing exactly the same thing. On the right, right, we do see um, while there will while there is more you know misleading and inaccurate content, you'll rarely see like bad words, for example. That's something that on the right folks tend to refrain from. However, on the left, like um, really partisan, you know, left-leaning opinion propaganda stuff, uh, tons of curse words, tons of um, you know, tons of really vile personal insults. So that's not exactly the same thing. That's just, those are just the things that move things towards the bottom of the chart on each side. Another argument that folks might make is, well, what happens if this uh, company ends up skewing, you know, some of these big brand dollars, like to one political side or the other. So is your goal uh, to proportionally direct ad dollars to like sort of uh, reasonably biased right and left sites or like what happens, for instance, if a lot of the money that ends up coming in, you know, using your data ends up going to left-leaning sites or, or right-leaning sites? Is that still a win for you because they're going to more reasonable news or is that something that you want to stay away from? We want to direct uh, ad dollars towards high, more highly reliable sites. And there are mm -hmm. highly reliable sites on on the left and the right. So, yeah, and I don't want to, you know, duck this question. I, I talked about how the, yeah. like the right-leaning sites uh, how there's more like misleading um, and inaccurate ones like bef below like a, a low threshold on our chart. Well, one, uh, so folks on the left look at that and they're like, haha, see, I was correct. Um, but the chart also shows data that um, it vindicates folks on the right. Uh, a lot of folks on the right say that the mainstream media, like some of the biggest publications, skew left. And if you look at the concentration of some of the biggest news properties in in our country uh they do skew left they're not sitting like right there on the middle of, of the chart and it's there's not an equal distribution above this you know the high reliability threshold and if you think about like how our country is and how uh, content is and how there's just tens of thousands of news sources out there it's almost an impossible expectation to think that there would be equal and opposite news sites uh, across every possible spot in the chart, right? Uh, there are so many different factors at play. So ultimately, we just want folks to support the brands to support the most reliable content, whether it's left center or right leaning. And I say center because center is a bias too. Vanessa, is there a risk that this just ends up like directing money to the mainstream? mainstream sites versus like the upstarts. I mean, because it does seem like, all right, like part of like a proxy of what we've been talking about is like, you know, these are, are these establishment sites or, you know, talk, so talk about your rebuttal to that, what, what people would say on that front. So some, somebody can score high reliability on our chart if they're like brand new, you know, they did, do not have to be around for a long time. And there are a bunch of uh, newer sites uh, just in the last, uh, in the last few years, like, like uh, the messenger is a new site, you know that popped on um, on the scene, and we rated it as a high has a high reliability score. But it doesn't have to be just like a big site that happens to be one that's like well funded and it has some like media industry veterans uh, associated uh, with us. But being new doesn't preclude them from being high reliability. Um, but also right. being small doesn't preclude you from being high reliability. So podcasts, like yeah, you know, we 
we scoured like the the media landscape for for new su- Substacks. Like it it can be just a one person shop, but if that cont is about the content. So we right. actually are helping advertisers discover not just like the good stuff they know, you know, it's, yeah, do I need to tell people like, oh yeah, the AP and Wall Street Journal and like New York Times, like those are good. People know those ones, right? We're talking about the ones that people don't know, the new stuff, the um, the small stuff, the local stuff. You know, there's so much good local content. There are so many good trade publications that absolutely deserve this kind of uh this spend, these ad dollars. And we have like thousands and thousands of them that we've identified. Okay. Can this extend to social media at some point? I mean, is this something that like a buyer who wants to buy, like we let's go full circle. We talked about Facebook. We talked, you know, we talked a little bit about X. Mm-hmm. Can a media buyer, like there's been so much discussion right now in terms of like, you know, Elon Musk and his, you know, anger towards advertisers for pulling out of Twitter completely. Like, could this be something that an advertiser decides, hey, I'd like to go to Twitter, but want to buy mostly like the discussion that falls into the, you know, less extreme areas of conversation? Or is that too complicated to work through? It's actually not. Um, so we actually have uh, data on X, X Twitter um, handles and publications because everything that we've rated on our um, on our chart uh, where they have like Twitter handles and other social media handles like YouTube, uh, we we match it up and tag it because the content that somebody produces outside of social media is often very similar, if not the same, as the content that they put on social media. And you know, X has the it, uh, adjacency controls. You know, they have a tool mm. for those who aren't familiar, um, like for advertisers. Um, they can say, the advertisers on X can say, I do not want my ads showing up next to, you know, these particular handles or these particular keywords. We we have data that advertisers could use to make those decisions on platforms like that. And ideally, we'd like to see that. Uh, and we, we have that kind of data for X. We have it for YouTube. We even have it for Threads, even though they don't have an mm-hmm. um, ad, ad product, product. yet. Um, but yes. The, Has any advertiser used that yet? Not yet. So it's a new it's okay. a new uh, offering. So you know we're hopeful oh, wow. that we've okay. uh, uh, we're hopeful that folks will because social like as much as uh, you know social media is a really fraught place with a you know lots and lots of uh, real valid concerns about the content that's on it broadly. Um, advertisers sort of can't help the uh, wanting to reach their audiences that are there and you know different people see different stuff across those platforms let's end with uh you know a small discussion on ai yeah so you have dozens of people uh under your employee that are rating these stories you mentioned it's like a very painstaking process can artificial intelligence be something that we could reliably use to rate stories i mean ai comes with its own bias mm-hmm. so it's kind of interesting. How do you see AI factoring into the future of your of your work? Well, we've been working on this for this problem for a really long time, and to be honest, a lot of folks have uh, for a long time tried to uh, th- like this holy grail was like, oh, what if we could just identify misinformation with AI? Wouldn't that be so great? Like mm. we would have none anymore. Uh, and the reason that that hasn't happened is because it's very difficult for a machine to. Uh, tell like the nuance of how true something is and how left and right it is to degrees. So 
you know, that's what we started with manual ratings. But, you know, over the years, we've uh, developed it. So it's almost over 70,000 individual pieces of, of content that we've hand labeled. Um, I'm a patent attorney by background. I, you know, did software patents uh, in my career. And I, you know, I knew that, you know, manually labeled training data is what you need in order to create uh, AI for, yeah, for pretty much anything. So we have this, the largest in the world, we believe, set of labeled data for this. So we've developed our own AI models. So we can actually now score articles at scale for reliability and bias. And it's quite accurate as compared to our own human ratings. And that, I, I say this is something we've been working towards for a long time because, you know, if folks look at the, the painstaking work that we've done to rate articles and episodes and they're like, wow, that's that's great. But like, can we do this at scale? Because in advertising and social media and content on the internet in general, there's just so much of it. So humans aren't scalable enough. AI is not accurate enough. So for us, it uh, you know, I'm really I'm pleased that we've been able to get to this point where we rate the top news articles with humans every day, and we rate the rest of the uh, news landscape uh, with AI. So we're rating now tens of thousands of articles per day to help advertisers like reach that scale that they want. What? Okay, I just got to ask you. What? There's, there's, there's just been this. You know, I, I already said we're going to sign off, but <laughs> you know, it just, it just popped in my head. Like, the, what do you think about the whole argument, like the free speech argument, and does this sort of impede on the free speech argument? I've, it wouldn't surprise you to know that I've thought a lot about this. So, um, <laughs> especially like with, when it comes to content moderation and you know Section two thirty, and you know, for for those not familiar with uh, you know Section two thirty, I mean it's it's a law that basically allows social media uh, companies to escape liability for either moderating content or not moderating content. Like let social media companies just sort of off off the hook, and the it seems that the only real workable way to do and do, do anything about um, misleading or extremely polarizing content on the internet while still respecting not only the laws of free speech in this country but the ethic we have around free speech in this country the only way to respect that is to label content and provide users more of a choice so mm. you know People, no one in this country, I mean, this is a broadly shared left and right sentiment. People don't want information to be repressed. People don't want information to be censored. They want to be able to have choice about information, even if it's abhorrent or even if it's false. But the reality of like the this very overwhelming information landscape is that people need more information about the information that they're going to consume. So it's a... I view labeling stuff as a solution, like it's like a content rating for movies. Like this is G, PG, PG thirteen, R. Like you just have a general idea when you're walking into it, like what you're getting into. You can have the choice whether to to do it or not. So like a label of like you know left and right. Here's how far. This is fact analysis opinion, or it has some other problems. Here's some more information about it, and you can make that choice about it. To me, that's a version of more speech being the solution to your know, free speech problems. 
Right. Okay. Really the last question. Any 2024 campaigns coming to you to say, hey, I want to advertise to like this segment of the population? And if not, do you expect them to come through? Yeah, we, yeah, we have uh, had some uh, agencies for political advertisements uh, express interest in our in our ratings. And it, we, we find that really fascinating. So just to be clear, like the terms of our data uh, are really explicit that you cannot use our data to target um, like most extreme or misleading content, right? It's really fascinating to be able to use our um, our information about content and how left and right it is, because we believe that there's a very high correlation between like the content people read and their political views, right? Usually center people read center stuff and center left people read center left stuff and center right people read center right stuff and on and on, right? Um, and it's uh, hard for political advertisers to target people to that level of uh, gran- voters to that level of granularity. And in elections that are devi- that are decided by just tiny uh, vote counts, tiny percentages, it's really important to reach persuadable folks. So our data is quite useful for identifying who would be persuadable. And hint, it's folks that read more reasonable content. Yeah. Like if I'm in a Republican primary campaign, I'm working on that staff. I'm going to you and saying, get me the, you know, people that are reading, you know, the based in fact, center right publications and uh, give me them in Iowa. And, Mm -hmm. you know, then you're, you're really talking about a group that could have weight politically. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the folks that are like reading very, very strong left and right, they tend to not be persuadable. It's just the nature of our, you know, very uh, polarized uh, society right now. But there, uh, what gives me hope is there are a lot of reasonable folks reading high quality, high reliability news. And uh, yeah, we, we want to elevate the folks who are putting out that kind of work, that kind of journalism. Vanessa Otero, thanks so much for joining. My pleasure. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Nate Guatney, for handling the audio. Thank you, LinkedIn, for having me as part of your podcast network. We have a great set of shows coming up for you over the next couple of weeks. We do hope you stay tuned, and we'll see you next time on Big Technology Podcast. Big Technology Podcast.